Ed Sorrell is an illustrator, caricaturist, and cartoonist. He's done 46 covers for The New Yorker alone. Finally, he put his talents toward his obsession, actress Mary Astor, and her famous Purple Diary. I'm a comic artist. I'm incapable of doing serious illustration. Her life was really, in, in many ways, tragic. But since I could only do humorous illustrations, I had to turn it into a screwball tragedy. We'll also talk with Jason Michelli, author of Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. I wrote the book because when I got sick, I, I got so many crappy books um, written in a Christian-ish vein that were telling me that there was only one way to do this thing uh, as a Christian. And I, and I just, I find that I find that problematic, and I can see how it could do profound damage to someone as well. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and for the Pacifica Radio Network and Public Radio Exchange, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Coming up later this hour, I'm going to speak with a young minister who at the age of 37 was diagnosed with a form of cancer usually reserved for men in their 60s and 70s. Jason Michelli tells his story in his book, Cancer is Funny, keeping faith in stage serious chemo. And so there's just something about the vulnerability of suffering and facing death that I think it it leaves you open to, to weeping, but it also leaves you open to, to, to laughing too. Mary Astor's biggest role was Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Bridget was the love interest of Sam Spade, played by Humphrey Bogart in the film, The Maltese Falcon. I will later when I can. You've got to trust me, Mr. Spade. Oh, I, I'm so alone, afraid. I've got nobody to help me if you won't help me. Be generous, Mr. Spade. You're brave, you're strong. You can spare me some of that courage and strength, surely. Help me, Mr. Spade, I need help so badly. I've no right to ask you, I know I haven't, but I do ask you, help me. You won't need much of anybody's help, you're good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and that throb you get in your voice when you say things like, be generous, Mr. Spade. I deserve that. Mary Astor is most famous for what happened off screen and is recorded in her diary. Ed Sorrell brings her story to life in the book he wrote and illustrated, Mary Astor's Purple Diary, the great American sex scandal of 1936. John Barrymore had just completed his run as Hamlet on the Broadway stage, acclaimed by everyone as the greatest American Shakespearean actor and he was riding on the 20th century to Hollywood to to act in Bo Brummel when he picked up a movie magazine that had a picture of 16 year old Mary Astor and under the picture was the headline on the verge of womanhood well uh, Barrymore who had made it uh, a, a, a bit of a hobby to deflower virgins was uh, was so enamored with the picture with the photograph and the headline that when he reached Hollywood he insisted that Warner Brothers get him Mary Astor as his leading lady and uh, a whole chapter in my book is devoted to his machinations to finally uh, deflowering the poor thing. I'm on the phone with Ed Sorrell, who has taken the story of Mary Astor and put it into a book with illustrations of his own. Uh, welcome, Mr. Sorrell, to Progressive Spirit. Glad to be here. Uh, talk about um, Mary Astor's uh, Purple Diary. This is book is, is a long time coming. You've been, uh, what shall we say, enamored with Mary Astor for some time? Yes, I, I, I met Mary Astor by chance in 1965, when I picked up linoleum on my, in my kitchen because it was rotting and needed to be replaced, 
and under four layers of linoleum, I came across the Daily News and the Daily Mirror from 1936, and they were full of headlines about a custody battle that was taking place in Los Angeles with very big headlines because, um, because the person, Mary Astor, a featured player in Hollywood movies, kept a diary with all her extramarital affairs, which her husband found and used it to blackmail her into giving him the, her money and her and the house and custody of their child and and she was now suing now that she had the divorce she was suing for custody of her child and he was going to use the he was going to use the diary to prove she was an unfit mother and this caused big headlines because one of the people in her diary was none other than George S. Kaufman, the most successful playwright on Broadway. And I became fascinated by the scandal and, uh, and decided I would do a book, but I didn't do it for another 50 years because the deadlines kept me busy. And so you finally uh, found time. Just, well, just recently. Uh, time found me because uh, magazines about 10 years ago started to, started to fall, and uh, the few magazines that were left decided that it was easier to use photographs rather than illustration. You know how temperamental artists are. Uh, and, uh, and suddenly there wasn't enough work. So I decided to do the book that I had promised myself 50 years ago I would do. Did you ever uh, meet with her personally? No, of course not. I did, I did receive a letter from her <clears throat> um, many, many years ago because uh, I had done a caricature of the Maltese Falcon in which she was the leading lady. And, um, and her editor had bought the original to give to her, and she sent me a lovely letter. Uh, thanking me for the for the original. But in your book, you mention uh, going back. You used to be uh, quite a fan of the movies as a child, and and you remember seeing her in uh, one of the early films. Yes, I, I was ten years old when I saw her in The Prisoner of Zenda, and I had never seen a woman as beautiful as that. And um, and that was about. I didn't give her much much thought after that until I saw her in the Maltese Falcon. By which time, I was um, I was an adult. I had I was in art school when I saw her in the Maltese Falcon. I thought it was a it was an extraordinary piece of acting, and um, she won my heart all over again. So, as an actress, uh, she made a good living. I mean, so many people took advantage of her. Uh, from beginning with her parents. Yes, she, yeah, she was really an, uh, an abused childhood in a lot of ways. She, she, uh, she had an immigrant German father who had come to America for no other reason but to get money. And uh, when all his ventures failed, he suddenly decided that his teenage daughter was pretty enough to be a movie actress. And, uh, and, when when she finally got a contract from famous players, um, he he took all her money and and controlled her life, and saw to it that she didn't play with children of her own age, and completely dominated her so that she was unprepared for adulthood because she had never made decisions on her own. And that kind of plagued her, as I'm reading your book, uh, throughout her life, that there is a sense in which she just, um, in fact, at one point in the book, you uh, speak to her of saying, come on, Mary, achieve something here, uh, get, get over the, uh, the passivity. Yes, I, uh, you know, she was, she was offered starring contracts from both RKO and Paramount Pictures, and turned both of them down in favor of of contracts for featured roles rather than starring roles, because her reasoning was if you're if you're a star, you're you're probably only go, especially if you're a woman star, you're only going to last about five or six years, and then your name is going to come under the title rather than above it, 
and uh, and your drawing capacity will be much less. And she preferred to to change studios every four years as a featured player because she could demand a great deal of money. One year she she played in six movies in one year when she was under contract to Warner Brothers, and she preferred that. Uh, there are certain responsibilities with stardom that she didn't care for, but mostly she wanted to have a long career. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Edward Sorrell. He is the author of Mary Astor's Purple Diary, the great American sex scandal of uh, 1936, uh, complete with uh, 50 uh, illustrations for this book alone. Um, was it fun uh, drawing these illustrations, especially uh, back into the, uh, the 20s and 30s? Uh, uh, drawing is only fun when you're an amateur. Once you become uh, a professional at anything, it stops being fun. But I, I did enjoy the finished product. I thought I thought I did a, a good job on the drawings, and uh, and that was fun. I, you know, I remember once an art director gave me a job and told me to have fun with it, and I was unable to do the drawing. The idea of of, of of fun, I think. You know, the word amateur means a love, love of doing it. And uh, that, that stops when you're a professional because you, you've, you've got to do it. You've got to do it right. You, you just can't do it. You know, I Googled your name and went through uh, the various magazine covers, and I had uh, Deja Vu. I remember uh, this one particular cover. It was a Time magazine with Jimmy Carter, uh, Carter's Foreign Policy, Jimmy in the Lion's Den, and caricatures of political leaders uh, surrounding him. I was a teenager when I saw that. I remember just being absorbed uh, uh, in that cover, especially as I've, I found it again. Um, so I, with your career, uh, if you don't mind, uh, 46 magazine covers. Uh, you mentioned fun isn't in the word there. What, what's been the most significant for you in terms of your, your work as a cartoonist and a satirist? Well, I, I, you know, you start out at the bottom of the barrel. You start out getting any job you can. You start out, and I started out as essentially a hack. I would do whatever, whatever the job required. And um, what at some point in my career, I was able to think of my own ideas and sell them to magazines. And once that happened, that became a challenge and enjoyable, and and uh, and I I had a good time as long as the magazines were around. What I didn't enjoy was was doing other people's ideas. Uh, but w- once I was able to to create my own, I I, I enjoyed my profession. Ed Sorrell, my guest, he's the author of Mary Astor's Purple Diary, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936. Let's go back uh, to the scandal 1936. Um, It doesn't seem like much of a scandal uh, in terms of today's Hollywood antics. Well, it it really was because uh, the movie studios were terrified that that Hearst was going to use the scandal for another one of his purify Hollywood campaigns. Uh, radio had had begun being a popular source of entertainment for the public, and they were afraid that the public would stay away from Hollywood if it suddenly was perceived as another Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they were very eager to have the contents of the diary uh, closed and not opened in the course of the trial, which is what her ex-husband was threatening to do. He was threatening to show contents in which she named the names of the people she was having affairs with. They were also afraid that some of the people in the diary would be one of their contract players, and God forbid they got a bad report card from from her in her diary. So, um, so th- there was... Um, there was a lot of um, fear on the part of the Hollywood studios, and since the Hollywood studios were really uh, really controlled the courts and the police force in, in Los Angeles, and since Louis B. Mayer at MGM had a very large part in electing the governor of California, they owed Hollywood studios a lot of favors, and and I believe that the governor, 
who appointed the judge in the Mary Astor custody trial was had, was very eager to have the dire, to have the case tried without the diary being open to the public. Of course, um, as it happened, a a reporter for the Daily News had bribed somebody in the in the law office and got the diary and photographed it so that on the very day that the trial began in California, uh, the Daily News already had contents of the diary, and uh, and they were pretty shocking. She... Um, uh, she used. Uh, she didn't in any way pull her punches uh, uh, as to as to the ecstasy that she had with George S. Kaufman, and and so it became a, a not only a sensation in this country but e- even in Europe. Her diary was was burned, wasn't it? But the contents of her diary are uh, because of these photographs are out there. Well, the the parts that describe her affair with George S. Kaufman in New York, those the, that part of the diary is in fact known and was reported in detail. Uh, in some cases, the the contents of the diary had to be cleaned up in order to print it in a family newspaper. In other cases, the the diary was puffed up to make it even more sexy. Uh, so uh, a lot of liberties were taken with her diary, but essentially what was in there is known. In 1956, some 20 years after, after the trial, the diary was burned. The diary had been kept under lock and key for, from the time of the trial. I was puzzled as I was reading the book on, on why it was taken from her, if it was her property. I guess it became evidence. Her husband stole it. She foolishly kept it hidden in her drawer under some, some, uh, some clothing. And, of course, he found it. He knew that she, she kept a diary. She had kept a diary ever since she was a teenager. And when she was a teenager, she couldn't be completely candid in her tired diary because... Her parents, who kept strict control on her, didn't even let her sleep in her own room with the door closed. They read her diary, and so when she was at, when she was 17 and had an affair with John Barrymore, the most celebrated actor in America, um, she she had to keep the affair secret, and um, and she did a pretty good job of it, but eventually. Um, Eventually, her parents found out about it. Mary Astor, as an actress, was she a good actress? I thought she was. The, the truth of the matter is that she she played in a lot of terrible roles. As as a featured player, she was just thrown into one melodrama after another. But uh, when she had any opportunity at all, with a good screenplay, I thought she was wonderful. Her her acting in Dodsworth, uh, a, a movie that for some reason is seldom seldom replayed, uh, uh, is is extraordinary. I won't let you. What else can I do? I won't let you go back to work. Please, Edith. I know this is a joke. It's a joke to me too. I won't see you killed by her selfishness. No, you don't understand. It'll be tough on her with all the talk there'll be. I love you and she doesn't. You're content with me. You're miserable with her. I know, I know. A moment ago you had the whole world in your hands. I won't let her take it away from you. She's not taking it away. You were a young man a minute ago. Just the sound of her voice. I know. It's everything starting up all over. You've shriveled. I've seen you shrivel the same way every letter you've got from her. I can't think. You're all wrong to go back. Now, please, it'll be fair. She's in a hole. She needs you. She does not need you. And you might think of me. I am thinking of you. No, I won't make you choose just between two women. Think of Moscow and Seattle and Samarkand. I know, I know, I know every bit of it. It's one word from her and you trust right back. You've got to be patient with me. What is this hold she has over you? I've got to take care of her. A man's habits get pretty strong in 20 years. She's the most winning of actresses and had a lovely voice, lovely diction. 
and and then of course in Maltese Falcon she had the role of her life. And Dodsworth was the film uh, that she was doing uh, while the court case was happening. Yes, yes. Sam Goldwyn, who was producing Dodsworth, could not get the court to postpone the trial. Uh, the only thing the courts would do would was allow her to to work during the day and and show up at court at nighttime, which uh, which worked for a while, but uh, it was a terrible strain on her. And finally, there was a recess that allowed her to finish Dodsworth, and then the trial resumed. It, w- it was rather amusing. Uh, the The newspapers had to keep interest in the trial going during that one-week period when Mary was allowed to finish the movie, and they used fantastic devices in in which to keep the public interested in the trial until it resumed. Her diary uh, became sexy so that the magazines used it uh, continually. If Fred McMurray got married, they would suddenly have an article on Fred McMurray's wedding diary. You can't believe how enveloped the country was in this trial during 1936. Yeah, you said that uh, even big news items were, were moved to the second page. Oh, yeah. No, no, nobody was reading about Franco, uh, who was marching on, on Madrid in, in the Spanish Civil War. Even Hitler was pushed off the front page in 1936, uh, at least on the tabloids. Of course, the papers like the Times... Uh, was more serious, but even even the New York Times managed uh, was forced to put Mary Astor trial on the front page. So why is her diary purple? Well, it really wasn't. Uh, the diary itself was not purple. It was called a purple diary because Mary used Aztec brown Waterman's Aztec brown ink in her fountain pen, and the and the. Reporters decided that the brown ink was really purple ink, so they so it could match with the purple prose, and so it kept being referred to as the purple diary. When in point of fact, it was really brown ink. Purple being, I guess, a scandalous color. That's yes, the idea. Purple, purple prose is one that that is sexual. Yes. And Edward Sorrell, uh, Mary Astor's Purple Diary is his book, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936. Now, Mary Astor wrote her own autobiography uh, that came in in 1959. Did she talk about that diary and that, that scandal well, much of there? She had no, no, she couldn't help but talk about the diary. It was, it changed her career. It, uh-huh. uh, it, it, rather than ruin her career, which is what she assumed it would do, if it became public, uh, suddenly she was put in in more important movies, and uh, and she had a chance to prove she was a good actress. I forgot the question now. So she wrote her own autobiography, and I was thinking about uh, how she reflected upon that oh. scandal. Oh yeah, the, well the, she she couldn't help but but speak about the scandal. The diary was what attracted me to her because she she was a terrific writer. She was witty, uh, observant, and delightfully self-denigrating and, and, and owned up to the mistakes that she made in her career. So um, what she didn't, of course, mention was the fact that she was a hopeless alcoholic and had attempted suicide three times. The problem I had uh, in doing the book was I'm a comic artist. I'm incapable of doing serious illustration. When I attempt to do something with uh, pathos, uh, it always comes out satirical. So um, her life was really, in in many ways, tragic. But since I could only do humorous illustrations, I had to turn it into a screwball tragedy rather than a real tragedy and, and pointed out some of the ridiculous aspects to her life. Uh, so the, the book is uh, essentially a, a light read rather than a heavy one. And uh, I was thinking of that one time when you have her come uh, from the spirit world <laughs> to speak to you. Uh, where yeah. did you get the content there? Well, when I had to 
know more about her meeting with George S. Kaufman than I knew. I invented a one chapter in which I pretend to go to a monsignor at an unnamed archdiocese and ask him to bring Mary down from her Catholic heaven so that I could interview her. And in this imagined chapter, uh, she and I have an interview. For some reason, my editor allowed me to do this. The rest of the book is, is, is factual, but in this one chapter, I imagine what it would be like to interview her. Turn to religion just for a second. In 2010, just for you, you were named to the Freedom from Religion Foundation Honorary Board of Distinguished Achievers. And you talk about um, your, your, your uh, atheism uh, in your book. And, uh, and, and certainly when you read your, uh, many of your uh, caricatures uh, that you use religion in a funny way, you have Nixon in the Garden of Gethsemane or Ayn Rand bringing down the Ten Commandments to the poor, me, 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 me. Mary Astor, though, was religious, and, and she seemed to care uh, about her status uh, with the Roman Catholic Church. She did. Well, she, at some point in her life, she became, uh, she, uh, she, she herself was Lutheran, but she decided that the Catholic Church was the true church, and she wanted, she wanted desperately, she doesn't explain in her autobiography why it was so important to her to be part of the Catholic Church, but uh, she came under the influence of a very concerned priest, the one who encouraged her to write her autobiography. And um, and at some point in the book, I address the fact that that having being a proselytizing atheist myself, it was uh, rather odd for me to to choose her as as my dream girl. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, to, to each his own, I, I, uh, I was amused at the, uh, at the contortions that the Catholic uh, Church went through to allow her to become a Catholic because she had, after all, she had four marriages. Three of them ended in divorce. And yet she... Uh, and she was able to join the Catholic Church through machinations that I didn't quite understand. But uh, she finally did achieve. She was able to get confession. She made peace with herself in that in that respect. Maybe that was it. I was kind of wondering what effect her religion had on her, if it made her passive or was some sense of who knows. No, I think I think it gave her an inner peace, which she longed for. She became... A writer. Uh, it, it was largely due to how well her autobiography was received that she started writing novels. Uh, and the novels, at least in the beginning, were very well received. She was a, she was a good writer. You are listening to Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock, and I'm speaking with Ed Sorrell, author and illustrator of Mary Astor's Purple Diary, the great American sex scandal of 1936. We'll finish a conversation and then be joined by Jason Michelli. His book is Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. Today's theme is tragic comedy. This is Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. My guest has been uh, Edward Sorrell. He's the uh, author of Mary Astor's Purple Diary, which he illustrated himself, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936. Just a, a final question before we go. What, uh, what's the significance, uh, 50 years of um, this book coming into being for you? What's, what's the, what does Mary Astor mean to you? <laughs> well, she, she doesn't... She doesn't uh... I'm not obsessed with her in the sense uh, that I have fantasies about her. She simply, she simply represented to me uh, a 
I, I admired her as an actress, but she represented her story, her life story represented a good story that I could write and illustrate. Uh, I, I may have, um, I may have pictured myself as a crazy old man in the book, but, uh, my my obsession with Mary Astor is uh, is not outrageous. It's uh, it's just an interest in her. But I have an interest in many many uh, people that uh, who have lived many historical figures. But she 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 does deserve to be remembered as a good actress and. Uh, and that, that, that's about the extent of my obsession. <laughs> I was just thinking, I mean, there, there was an aspect of resilience about her that uh, was admirable as I'm reading her through your story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she, she uh, you know, she was in over 100 movies. Her career lasted from The Silence in 1924, where John Barrymore uh, chose her to be his leading lady in... Bo Brummel. By the way, that's that's a rather interesting story. John Barrymore had just completed his run as Hamlet on the Broadway stage, acclaimed by everyone as the greatest American Shakespearean actor. And he was riding on the 20th century to Hollywood to, to act in Bo Brummel when he picked up a movie magazine that had a picture of 16-year-old Mary Astor and under the picture was the headline on the verge of womanhood well uh barrymore who had made it uh, a, a bit of a hobby to deflower virgins was uh, was so enamored with the picture with the photograph and the headline that when he reached hollywood he insisted that warner brothers get him mary astor as his leading lady and um, uh, a whole chapter in my book is devoted to his machinations to finally uh, deflowering the poor thing. Uh, actually, he was a good influence on her. He 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 um, he brought her books. He he educated her to a large extent because her family kept her. Uh, she did not have an enlightened childhood, and Barrymore introduced her to to the outside world. He was not he was not uh, he was a good influence by and large on her. Edward Sorrell, my guest, Mary Astor's Purple Diary: The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936, a delightful read. Uh, Mr. Sorrell, thank you so much for this work and for being with me today. Oh, thank you. Jason Michelli is executive pastor at Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and writes the popular Tamed Cynic blog. At the age of 37, Jason was diagnosed and treated with mantle cell lymphoma. The doctors simply called it stage serious. He's with me to talk about that in his book. Welcome, Jason, to Progressive Spirit. Oh, thanks for having me. Jason, at the age of 37, you're diagnosed and treated with Mantle cell lymphoma. The doctors simply called it stage serious. What is this form of cancer? Uh, so about two years ago, I woke up having had surgery um, on my intestine. I had a 11 by 11 inch tumor removed um, from emergency surgery. And I woke up to my wife telling me that they were waiting for the biopsy results, but I likely had one of five rare cancers. Um, and then the next day I find out from my doctor that I have something called mantle cell lymphoma, which is this really, really rare bone marrow cancer that affects typically men in their sixties and seventies. Um, and because everyone has seen the movies and, and knows to ask, you know, well, what stage is the cancer? Uh, that's what I asked my doctor. Um, and he explained to me that mantle cell usually manifests itself. So, uh, suddenly um, and, and aggressively that it, it's, it's, you, you can't stage it like normal cancers. Um, because by the time it presents itself, it's normally, you know, stage four, stage five. Uh, and so he tried to deflect my question by just calling it stage serious, um, and that we needed to treat it right away or I would be dead. 
Wow. And you said an 11 inch by 11 inch tumor. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, I mean, it, the, uh, it was the size of a Stephen King novel uh, that I'd been carrying around. <laughs> um, and I'd had about, you know, really bad abdominal pains for about six months on and off that I just thought were ulcers or something like that. And it turns out I had this, you know, cancer child in me. And so, uh, then you went, uh, treatment and a whole lot of it, a whole bunch of chemo, just yeah, ridiculous I did a, amount. A year of really intense, uh, uh, regimen of chemo, um, that I, and, and, and I'm still, so I do, I, I just got back an hour ago. Actually, I, I do a day a month of, of maintenance chemo, um, because I'll, I'll never be in remission. And, and what I can hope for is to keep it at bay. That was my next question. Are you in remission? But you say you're never in remission. No, it'll never go away. Um, it's just indolent in, in my system. Um, but I mean, I look normal. I feel normal. Um, and kind of, I'm back to work and back to the life that we had before. I want to talk with you about, uh, the title of your book, cancer is funny on the cover. There's an image of a smiley face with five hairs growing out of its head, funny and rainbow colors. I have to say at first I found it a little off putting. And then I said, well, wait a second. After I read your book, <laughs> this guy's been through hell. His whole family's gone through hell with him. He has the right to call his book anything he wants. Um, so if cancer is funny, gets him through the day, then cancer's funny. So I'm asking this question now appreciatively. Uh, how did you come to realize that cancer is funny? Uh, on a number of different levels. I, I, uh, I mean, just, you know, first, humor is one of my primary vantage points through, mm -hmm. you know, I see life through. Um, it's also, as I acknowledge in the book, um, humor is, like it is for many people, my defense mechanism. Um, and as a way for me to uh, avoid vulnerability sometimes. Um, and, and I think that's a consequence of having grown up in a, a family with addiction. Um, and so you, you learn humor as a, a device to, you know, not step on eggshells and things like that. Um, so, so cancer is funny in the sense that, like, humor is one of the ways I navigate myself through my life. Um, but it was also... Uh, on a more theological, spiritual level, um, I realized early on when I found out I was sick and maybe dying, that everybody from the religious to the non-religious, everyone assumes that suffering leads you closer to God or enlightenment uh, or wisdom. Um, that, that's just, you know, a, a universal assumption that people seem to have. Um, and for me, who God is most fundamentally at God's core is joy. Um, and so it makes sense to me that if suffering leads you closer to God, then at some point that experience of suffering has to give way to joy. And with joy comes laughter. Um, and so, so I, I kind of thought about my experience with that just kind of fundamental conviction about my faith. Um, and so I, I looked for the funny um, in an otherwise terrible situation. Um, and, and in my experience as a pastor, and I'm sure you understand this too, John, is that, uh, I mean, I've buried a lot of people. And so I know firsthand how quickly at gravesides and hospital rooms and deaths and accidents, you know, how quickly sobbing can give way to laughter. Um, and so there's just something about the vulnerability of suffering and facing death that I think it leaves you open to, to weeping, but it also leaves you open to, to, to laughing, too. Yeah, there's no misunderstanding here. There's, this isn't trite. I mean, uh, you also are very clear that cancer sucks. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, 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 I see it in the opposite way, too, that um, cancer throws you into a world of, I mean, terrible suffering and you know, children suffering and, and things of that sort. And so cancer is funny in the sense that it, it can it can make you think that as a believer, the joke's on you um, because it, it's just it's, at, at points along my journey. I just felt the absurdity of, of believing in this God. Tell me more about that. The joke's on you. Um, so for me, it, it was never wise God doing this to me. That wasn't the question. It uh -huh. was um, it was what, why, why is God doing this to them? in the sense of like this collective suffering that I, I got to see. Um, you know, one, one of the, 
one of the things I think cancer does is throw you into this community that you didn't really know existed before. And so when I wasn't doing chemo, I went to the doctor every day for an endless round of blood tests and all sorts of things. And so I spent every day for a year, you know, in this like waiting room with children and, you know, teenagers and college kids and lovers and husbands and wives. And, uh, and, and so like the question that kept coming back to me was, um, you know, why does this exist in the world and, and why is why is it or how is it that this is the best possible world that God could have made? Your experience with others uh, kind of in, in your community, um, in this club, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. what do they did you also see them finding um, using joy, finding uh, I don't know what, what the word is there? Also finding yeah. cancer funny or it, there's, um, yeah, with, with, with my, do- my, with my doctors, with my nurses, with, you know, fellow patients there, I mean, there's, I mean, I experienced profound sadness, um, uh-huh. on the cancer ward and emptiness, um, and, and nihilism among people. Um, but the flip side of that too was that there was plenty of gallows humor to go around too. I, I mean, it's, it's as simple as, uh, you know, when your nurse brings you the chemo meds and you have to verify your name and birth date on, on the bag of poison. Um, and right there below my name and birth date would be the warning that, you know, this can cause leukemia. And that's just an absurd kind of situation to be in. Right. There's sadness, but humor too. The gallows humor. Um, just full disclosure, my audience knows this. I, I uh, lost my son to suicide uh, five years ago. And so uh, oh I'm kind of thinking, gosh, it's, uh, I was thinking of writing a book called Surviving Suicide is Funny. I, I'm not sure I'm there yet, but I get it. Um, yeah. I mean, it is definitely um, that y- 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 you laugh, y- you deal with it that way, or, or you end up just, you know, under the bus somewhere. Well, I think, um, I mean, I'm certainly not saying everyone's cancer is funny. I'm saying my cancer is funny. Right. And, 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 and that's more than just, you know, it's more than just a personal narrative. It, it's my, one of the convictions that motivated me to write, um, the book is that I, I really resist, um, the idea that we need to protect God mm-hmm. or that there, or, or, or that, you know, as a Christian, I really resist the idea that Christians need to be explaining other people's suffering um, or that there's only one way to go through suffering as a person of faith. Um, and so, you know, my experience was one of looking for humor. I would never impose that on anyone else. I, I think it's I mean, I, I really I wrote the book because when I got sick, I, I got so many crappy books um, written in a Christian-ish vein that were telling me that there was only one way to do this thing uh, as a Christian, and I and I just I find that um, I find that problematic, and I can see how it could do profound damage to someone as well. Yeah, my guest is Jason Michelli. He's the author of "Cancer Is Funny: Keeping Faith in a Stage Serious Cancer." You're listening to Progressive Spirit. Let's go to your congregation for a second. How uh, do you deal now uh, with their expectations of how they want you to handle this? Um, you mean when I first got sick? <laughs> yeah, or any anywhere along the line. I'm just I'm actually reflecting on my own experience, and you, you kind of <laughs> understand. Um, I, I felt I needed to be a model griever. You know, and I'm kind of wondering if you had that uh, uh, pressure on yourself. Um, Not as much. So one of the things I talk about in the book that I'm like super proud of is that no one in my church gave me cheesy, cliched Hallmark cards with Bible sayings on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was really proud of them. And and, uh, the, the tone, the tone of the book is the tone of my ministry. So no one, no one was really surprised that I wrote the way I did or that I handled my experience the way I did. Some people were uncomfortable with it, but, but even they weren't surprised. Um, and so really the struggle I think with my congregation has been since I've come back. Uh Um, and the struggle is two twofold, I think. So on the one hand, there's a real need. I think that people feel because, because they, I mean, they do care about me and they were really scared. And so, on the one hand, they they want to treat 
my recovery is a miracle. Um, and I guess it can be like a small M miracle, um, but, it, but it will come back. Um, but, but hearing it talked about in miraculous language has been hard for my wife and my kids in particular um, because they, they live with this like a shadow. And so, so that's been hard. And, and as a pastor, and maybe you can relate to this, John, but as a pastor, it's been hard because everyone now wants to minimize their own suffering around me. Um, you know, so I, yeah. I just went to visit someone recently, you know, and, and like they want to preface everything that they're, they're feeling with. Well, it's nothing like what you went through. And I'm just like, well, no, you're dying. That's that's real. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to minimize this for me. Um, and so so, that, yeah, treating me like this kind of miraculous, you know, talesman uh, has made ministry more difficult in some ways uh, since I've come back. I, one more thing. I don't know if it's a connection with you, but feeling um, uh, you get a free pass every now and then or taking that free pass. Hey, wait a second. You know, I got cancer. You know, I, I don't necessarily oh, yeah, have to I, preach I, the best sermon. I, I, yes, I, 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 I am terrible about playing the cancer card and it, <laughs> it works every time. So it's great. Um, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I do play that. You quote Steve Allen uh, early on, uh, the comedy equals tragedy plus time. And and you evaluated that, but then you said, and that's not that's not quite the same thing. Talk about that formula and then the formula you came up with, uh, comedy equals life minus uh, fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone uh, attributes that quote to, to Mark Twain um, that about tragedy and time. Um, but it's actually from Steve Allen. I, I, my editor found that mistake actually. Um, and, and the, the trouble with that, uh, assumption about humor is that in, when you're facing a disease that has a very good chance of killing you, um, you, you don't have the luxury of hindsight and time. Um, and so there, for me, there was something wrong about that. Um, and then I, I remembered reading, I, th- I think it's in Steve Martin's biography or memoir, um, where he talks about this old vaudeville act, this kind of postmodern vaudeville act, where uh, a magician would come out, um, pretend to have a bird underneath a handkerchief, and then he would like uh, pull it out of a hat or something like that, and then let the bird go free to fly away, and the handkerchief just falls to the ground and lays there. Um, and it was the the absence of something in the joke that made it funny. Um, and so I thought about that. And and really what cancer does to you is is create huge craters in the life that you had. Uh, and so what you find that you can laugh at is what's missing. Um, the emptiness, the absence of, of what was there before. Um, and so, so, yeah. And so a lot of the humor that I discovered in my experience was just humor forced upon me by the way cancer displaced parts of my life. You talk about just a vulnerability of just being just left completely, you know, mm-hmm. at mercy, just no, no pride left. Right. When you're in the hospital gown and you put it on backwards. I mean, what, what, what's what's left after that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I. I I would like to be able to say that I chose to make myself vulnerable, but, uh, I mean, you really, it was out of my hands and, uh, you know, at a certain point you're like, why, why bother keeping up pretenses? Um, yeah, I mean, cause you, you have no hair, you have no eyebrows, like for, for the latter half of my treatment, I got mistaken for a woman several times. Um, you know, I mean, just catheters and impotence and, and all, all of that. Um, so it's, I mean, it's. A, I mean, we're in Lent now, right? So, I mean, <laughs> cancer is a good Lenten discipline for learning humility. <laughs> uh, so, my wife and I are watching Breaking Bad for emotional therapy. Did you uh, <laughs> watch that and think of have thoughts of cooking meth instead of ministry? Oh my gosh, that's. So, <laughs> so my first round of treatment, I was in the hospital, and some friends from the congregation brought me a, a sack full of DVDs. Uh, to watch while I was going through chemo and, and I'd heard about breaking bad and I'd read about what a great show it was. And so I was like, Oh, I'm looking forward to this. And I, and I really only knew it had something to do with meth. That's all in New Mexico. That's all I really knew. Uh-huh. And I queued up the first disc and I was like, Oh man, a cancer show. Like really? So I've only recently watched it. I, I was not in the mood to watch it then. 
Um, but it's funny. It's it's you know how like when you hear a word for the first time and then you notice it everywhere. Um, when you have cancer, you realize that, that it's everywhere. There were uh, two guy friends of mine um, while I was going through treatment would take me to the movies very often. And like, I swear, every movie we went to unknowingly had like revolved around cancer in some way. So like the Rocky, the Creed like sequel, um, like I think they're sparring in the ring and then all of a sudden Sylvester Stallone kind of passes out and throws up. And as soon as that happened, I, I knew it was coming. Uh, and so then there's all these ridiculous scenes where, you know, Rocky's getting chemo while training this other guy to box. And the friends who were with me in the movie theater were so uncomfortable that this was a, they took me to a cancer movie. Uh, and then it happened with Arrival, the movie this year that like that revolves around yeah. a, a, a child's cancer. Uh, and it was the same guys I went to the movies with and they were so uncomfortable um, that it's funny in hindsight. Jason Michelli uh, has been my guest. Cancer is funny. Keeping faith in stage serious chemo. Just a final question for you. Uh, as people mm-hmm. are going to be reading this book, uh, what do you hope at the end of the day that uh, that you have communicated here? I think um, what I have achieved is giving permission, either believers or, you know, curious people or wherever they are on the religious spectrum, I, I hope I've given them permission uh, to get through their suffering and to think about God in as real, unvarnished, and authentic way as possible. All right. Jason, thank you so much uh, for this book, for sharing your experience, uh, and for being with me today. For sure. Thanks for having me. Check your show out. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. 60 Minutes of Smart. Progressive Spirit is now in its sixth year and is now an hour long. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Hear it on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, ProgressiveSpirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. You're welcome.